This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. There's only you and me, and we just disagree. Yeah, that's how it goes between the United States and China. They have both sent conflicting signals over trade, with President Trump expressing optimism about the prospect of a deal. Beijing, meantime, warning that it will retaliate if the U.S. follows through on a threat to hike tariffs. Let's get into this with Sarah McGregor, uh, U.S. economic policy team leader here at Bloomberg News. She is in our 99.1 studio in Washington, D.C. Also with us, Dan Ebhardt. He is CEO at Denver, Colorado-based Canary. It's a drilling services company. Uh, Dan Eberhardt joining us on the phone from Houston. Sarah, get us up to speed. You know, market's kind of marking time today because I think we're not quite sure where we are. And yet Friday is the deadline for the imposition by the United States of uh, tariffs, right, on China. So where are we? It's very difficult to see where the wind is blowing on a trade deal right now. We know we heard from Trump today saying, you know, I, I actually think that China's coming here, you know, with the with the goal of getting a deal. And almost minutes after Trump spoke, China's saying it's going to, um, you know, put in retaliation when the U.S. goes through with these higher tariffs right in the middle of the next round of trade talks on Friday at, at midnight. So, you know, if if anyone's confused out there, I think it's uh, it's, you know, reflected in the markets. It's 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 really hard to tell right now what's going what exactly is going on. But, you know, the most remote possibility that we're seeing right now is that there is a deal announced this week. It looks like the tariffs will um, be escalated and that, you know, maybe the two sides will continue talking. But um, the chances of a deal look pretty slim. So, Dan, come on in here because, you know, you run an oil services company. You have put an op-ed out. You, you, as many CEOs do, have a vested interest in, in something getting done because trade ultimately affects decisions that you make as a leader. So how do you look at this as we are, as Sarah just rightly pointed out, essentially hours away uh, from no deal, at least for the moment? Sure. So to... And just to, just to add a little bit of context, so I was in China about two or three weeks ago, and I go four or five times a year. I got a couple of factories operating there, and you know, I I had a meeting. Uh, I was a part of a meeting in October with the vice chair of the NPCC in Beijing, and went to a different trade kind of trade conference on this trade war in Beijing when I was last in Beijing a few weeks ago. I think the Chinese are playing a very long game here, and they're okay with a protracted trade war as long as they eventually win. And there's uh, an escalating sense in China of Trump's days are numbered. We can hold our breath and outlast in 18 or 24 months more in this administration if it looks likely a Democrat will win. I think that's increasingly increasing the thought pattern in China. As far as the immediate stuff that's happened in the last week or so, I think it's very frightening for, you know, we, we've got good GDP numbers and we're really, really looking at a wet blanket being thrown on the economic growth we have right now. And I don't really know that that's in anyone's best interest. So what, Dan, do you think, though, are in the U.S.'s best interest when it is putting together a U.S.-China trade deal, whether it's now or ultimately? Well, I, I think that Trump, Trump has prescribed the problem correctly. I think they cheat on IP, and I think that they skirt a lot of the, in spirit, a lot of the WTO rules surrounding dumping. 
and things like this. I think Trump has prescribed the problem absolutely correctly. I think that he's got and and the the stomach for this trade fight that pri- the previous administrations, Republican and Democrat alike, just haven't had. Trump is okay with the fight if it will ultimately lead to a victory. But I think this is, you know, sort of like the North Korea negotiations, uh, a high-risk gamble that may ultimately pay off and lead to better freer trade and a better economy. But I think he's risking short-term economic growth, which is is good for the com- the com- country now and good for his re-election chances in, in November of 2020. And so what... In in your estimation, Dan, having spent a lot of time in in Beijing and China, as you say, what's the underlying economic picture there, and how does it compare with the underlying economic picture here in the United States? So I I think that Trump is more free to experiment with this because we've got a roaring economy, and it will just slow our growth down. Right. I think in China, the picture is the opposite. You know, this 6% growth for them is really a low a low bar of what they they need that or more and i think china is hurting more than it's letting on because of this trade war and it's really really impacting um the health of their economy and their growth rate which they need to put people to work and so i think they need a deal really really bad but again we're dealing with china and so it's very much about face the the idea that trump and she could have a meeting and trump could walk out that that would like as happened with the north korea negotiations in, in the Asian context, that's a disaster, and that's perceived much worse than if two Americans have an agreement and somebody walks out of the room. Right. In, in Asia, that is, that is perceived right. much, much worse. That's where you really need to understand cultural differences, and the optics on that would be devastating. Sarah McGregor, um, in terms of the president's team, is everybody on the same page, Mr. Lighthizer and some of the uh, president, uh, presidential advisors, when it comes to how the United States is proceeding in its negotiations with China? So what we're hearing is that, you know, more than before, at least, um, the hawks are a little bit more aligned with some of um, the more market-minded people like Steven Mnuchin. I think um, there was a general agreement that it was a good idea to to level this tariff threat to raise them on Friday on, on these $200 billion of Chinese goods. And I think that, you know, there's a little bit, it sounds like there's a little bit more um, collegiality amongst the, the, the folks there on how to take this China strategy. That being said, you know, well, the U.S. might not be in such a bad economic position as, as China right now. You know, things are looking good. Job numbers were better than expected in April. First quarter growth, again, better than forecast. You know, uh, Trump's under some pressure politically to get a deal. You know, he he basically, he came to power with this promise of getting tough on China. And if he hits the campaign trail for re-election without a deal, um, you know, which is going to happen pretty soon now, I I think that he would face face the wrath. Then again, if he gets a weak deal, same case. All right. Certainly fascinating to watch and not a done deal. Not even close yet. Uh, Sarah McGregor, U.S. Economic Policy Team Leader at Bloomberg News, Internet in one studio in Washington, D.C., or at least it doesn't feel like there's any deal close yet. Dan Eberhardt, our thanks to you as well. Chief Executive Officer at Canary, joining us on the phone from Houston. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Carol Master, along with Jason Kelly. This is Bloomberg Radio. So can I just say that this story is among our most read on the Bloomberg for all of today, Wednesday, and it's the third most read story in the past 60 minutes on the Bloomberg terminal. It's about, you know, Warren Buffett 
there's some stuff going on in the world. So, like, to cut through the noise, you got to have a good story. Yeah, exactly. And so she does. It has to do with Warren Buffett. You know, when he talks, he comes at an interesting time, just as the market's making some interesting moves, which led our crazy smart cross-asset reporter at Bloomberg News, Sarah Ponza. Well, you guys are too nice to me. <laughs> to look into a valuation model. We speak the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Um, value. We do think about value when we think of Warren Buffett. So right. let's get into your story. Tell me what you dug into. So basically, it was back on Monday. In an interview on CNBC, Warren Buffett came out and said that if you believe that interest rates are going to remain low, that we're going to remain in a low inflationary environment, then stocks look ridiculously cheap. Now, of course, that came before yesterday's major sell-off. So we decided to kind of circle back to these comments and put them on par with a model called the Fed model. Now, there can be a debate made about the Fed model. Some investment professionals like it just as a gouge of relative attractiveness of stocks versus bonds. Some don't like it too much. It, it has has its ebbs and flows where it really works sometimes. Sometimes it doesn't work. But the fact of the matter is that right now, if you take this into account, basically what you're doing is you're taking the S&P 500 earnings yield, mm-hmm. and then you are subtracting the 10-year treasury yield from that to get a relative measure, measure of value and attractiveness. Well, right. right now... Stocks over bonds, essentially. Exactly. So the wider that gets, the more attractive stocks look relative to bonds. Right. And right now... It stands at around 2.8, 2.9%. And that really, yes, it was a little bit higher earlier on in the year. But if you look at that attractiveness this year, it's the most attractive since back in 2016. So even if you look at some other typical measures, this one shows that, yeah, they're attractive. Hang on a second, because we have a headline, Jason. Yeah, just a quick headline, uh, a redhead crossing the Bloomberg right now. Uh, the Trump administration sanctioning Iranian iron, steel, aluminum, and copper sectors. We're going to have more on this as it develops, but this is following some military maneuvers, uh, I believe, moving an aircraft carrier group uh, toward that part of the world and certainly the rhetoric heating up. Uh, also following, I believe, keep me honest here, Carol, a surprise visit by Secretary of State Mike Pompeo to Iraq. Uh, clearly part of this uh, maneuvering, uh, as it were, around uh, Iran. And you had Iran also threatening to abandon their limits on uranium enrichment. So there's a lot of stuff going on in that part of the world right now. So that's a key headline to watch and certainly another one of those big macro stories that we're keeping an eye on. So go back to the valuation. So when it you're talking about when that stock valuation essentially or um, over treasuries is really attractive, right. it makes sense to look at the equity markets more closely. Right. Think about last year when a lot of people were saying, Tina, there is no alternative. That was no longer the situation (laughs) because finally cash was yielding something. We saw yields going higher, especially through the end of last year. And you didn't have to take the risk of putting money or investments into the equity market. Exactly. So now bond yields have come back down. So the idea is, well, if you have a low inflation environment, if you Mm -hmm. have low interest rates, and right now we clearly have seen yields come down as the Fed has pivoted this year, then when you talk about stock valuations, you have to think about them in context. You can't just put stock valuations in a vacuum and not consider what else is out there. This is a case that the bulls would make right now. Exactly. This is 
absolutely the case the bulls would make because I can tell you I also speak with investors right now who are looking at price to sales measures, price yes. to book measures, or even just forward price to earnings measures. And they will tell you that before this sell-off and even still as stocks stand now at these levels, valuations look a little bit stretched. So then you have to take the bull case and the bulls will say, well, then you have to really think about reality and take into context interest rates and inflation, which are really not much of anywhere. And that does give stocks their valuation case once again. So before we let you go, 30 seconds, a little bit surprised about the rebound in stocks today as you talk to your uh, team on the desk? I don't know if I'm too surprised about it. Yesterday was a pretty hefty sell-off and we saw some buying into the close. It was hefty, but it wasn't like the market, the equity market was coming undone. It's not the end of the world. It doesn't seem like this is the big one. And yes, we will see volatility through Friday. We have to see whether or not those tariffs are actually going to place as of 12.01 a.m. But until then, I mean, fluctuating between gains and losses is probably what we are going to see. Sarah Ponzak, always love catching up with you. We love it when you stop by. Cross Asset Reporter for Bloomberg. Incredibly prolific and, as if we needed more evidence, got a new podcast. It's called What Goes Up with another one of our faves. She's got a twin or there, maybe Mike there's three Regan. of them. And yeah, somebody's be. writing, She's somebody's doing the podcast, somebody's Here going the on York TV. Bureau, we have a cloning radio. experiment uh, underway. <laughs> Sarah Ponzak, you're the best. It's All called right. the Bloomberg Tech Lab. There you go. <laughs> or Science Lab. So we want to talk about some big names in the investment world who got together for really a discussion about some of their big investment ideas. Back with us is Steve Kroll, Managing Director of Monas Crespi Hart & Company. He's back in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio to tell us about the latest Titans Dinner. It was held last week. Um, so remind everybody who you well, pull together. Uh, Carol and uh, Jason. We like to do that. Just we keep bring, everybody... Uh, about 20 of the best financiers from New York, and uh, not saying who was at this particular one, but we bring in Hank Greenberg, Ken Langone, Stanley Druckenmiller, Bill Miller. So you get a sense of uh, these are people that uh, in total probably run 6 to $7 trillion from their various institutions, obviously BlackRock and T. Rowe being the, being the largest. But you get a feel for what's going on. Uh, the interesting thing on this one... And it was held, we should point out, before the sell-off this week. That is correct. Okay, that so it was correct. held last week, almost well, a week I ago. I think the, the point of the market was prior to the sell-off, the technical deterioration in the market was, was apparent where six to ten stocks were really carrying the, the, the rally the last couple of weeks. Um, so you were seeing some divergence. Also, your new high list was coming in and your new uh, low list was increasing. So there were a few people thought that this was a perfect storm, that we could have uh, a five percent correction easy. So people were calling for it. Well, they were calling for it, but they're still they're they're still bullish, and, yeah. and I'll get into that to explain it. And and I think what they said was, when you have China, you have Iraq, Iran, Venezuela, some earnings like Google, which were not as transparent as as they want. Uh, we are really set up for a a correction because the market is. Is uh, had a big run, right. um, so I think that was the the glowing theme of the dinner. Not expecting it happened in one day or what have you. And what you have here with the Trump tweets, which are going on, it seems like every uh, five minutes. Uh, I think, and they think that the uh, tariff will be done probably over the weekend. It will be a very shallow agreement. Uh, you will have probably no uh, looking after the. 
Chinese subsidies of the industries. It would be very hard to enforce. The Chinese will probably continue to that. And no way to uh, stop the stealing of the intellectual properties. The only thing that will probably go through will be they'll buy a lot of produce and a lot of uh, food stuff, and they'll all say everything's great and everything's what have you. Then the market will probably have a, a rally like it's having today, and then we'll go back to the correction period of 3 4 to 7%. So it's just a fundamental correction based right. on the run-up. 100% okay. a fundamental correction. The reason for that is earnings are so-so. Uh, you have some real hit and misses in the same industry. Um, housing is slowing. Autos are slowing. So you just, And retail, we get some indications retail is slowing. So you get some indication that you know things are starting to slow down. But we're better than any other place in the, in the world. And our rates are lower. Mm-hmm. And they're not going up that much. So we're kind of stuck when it got, the market got ahead of itself, 17%. You're due for a pullback. Yeah. Just to give you one statistic, I've been in the business over 45 years. I've had almost 15 10% corrections and there was nothing wrong and i'm leaving out 87 2000 and 2008 so we could wake up and uh, have you know yeah. uh, a correction and that's part of that's part of life there's we've had we had it last year uh, so that's all we think that's going to happen there were a lot of stocks there that uh, people liked um, one person was very intelligent, said they thought AIG was going to turn around and wow. it was on the list. That was a great and call. That was a great call. And they had finally, for the first time, and, yeah. uh, uh, and you know, Hank Greenberg did a great job with this company, but the new management has not done well up until recently. Uh, also, six, six quarters of missing estimates. Streak, right? I think it yeah. goes back probably about 12 quarters yeah, very, since yeah, Hank probably. left. But yeah. uh, you also had uh, health care was talked about. Um, and I know Larry Robbins on the own conference uh, mentioned it too. I think a lot of those stocks are down uh, too much. And he went through on his presentation, which we didn't do at the Titans, but the same thought process was that it's going to be very hard to get it passed uh, Congress and the Senate mm. because it's, you just have to change too, too many votes. And we don't have the money to uh, to handle it. So I mean, names like Anthem and United Health, right, people right. are saying the, it's the whole, worth taking the whole a look group, at. Just take a look in. at. Now, I think yeah. the problem is they're probably overowned, and so we have to get this little washout a little bit because they are they're not rallying uh, as as they should. But uh, uh, I think longer term they, they they should be fine because they're not going to change Medicare. One thing that jumped out on me on this list that you shared with us, tobacco. Or tobacco plus what? What was the? Well, I love that. Well, can I just say we won't say who did it, but they like managed care and tobacco. So that smoke is. away, and you're going to need health care. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good point. That was a good point. No, they just thought the dividends were high enough, and that uh, the market was overly discounting uh, that thought process. Anything surprise you this go around? Um, and do you I'll, think the guys would have changed their tune, guys and gals, would have changed their tune if the meeting was held this week versus last week? No. Okay. Uh, I think that they. It really sounds like they of, were fairly cautious. Well, if you look at the list, they we didn't have a lot of technology. It was hit and run. Yeah, no. you didn't have a lot of oils hit and run. So everything was. Most people say most things are priced to perfection, but I would buy this on a pullback. So that's not the way it used to be. Uh, it, yeah. it, you know, months ago, where you know I want to go full boat into this and full boat into that. So I think there was a. A cautious tone, you know. Obviously, when you do it in a, in a, in a one day event, um, it, it does take some. Uh, uh, you know, it, you think about it twice. But uh, no, I think that they were saying that the market was price perfection, and we have so many issues. Yeah. Even what you talked about, there's so much news going on. It's not all good. That uh, it's very hard to say this is. You know, market should be at 19 times uh, gap earnings and uh, should not have a a small pullback. 
What do they think about Jay Powell? Um, I think they mostly like him. I, uh, uh, what I've read um, and listened to him, uh, he was pushed into saying four hikes. Then he caved and he went to zero. Then he went to minus. Uh, and now we're probably back to a half a hike. That's um, a big push. I, it was a big push. Well, I, no, some of the economic data yeah. did, right. did start to come through. I think that the economy is the 3.2% GDP number was not a true number. It's the final real thing was one2 We're going to get probably one five or one six. And I think in order to keep this economy moving okay and Trump on top of them um, – He's going to have to stay with relatively zero increases for a while um, as the economy moderates. Although one of your individuals, I think, is worried and Fed tightening, worried about a Fed tightening. Yes, yes. He has been, in in all fairness, he has been negative for a while. Um, I also mentioned that uh, uh, I'm not sure why the bank stocks act so poorly. Mm. Part of it could be interest rates, but I call people's attention to the Wall Street Journal article this morning, which I was shocked at where the five money center banks have between 30 and 50 trillion of swaps uh, on their balance sheet. Now, that's what happened in 08. It may explain it. Uh, Remember, 1% uh, mistake on that wipes out the equity. So it's a a thing to look at. 1% of that amount is a lot. Right. Thank you. Thank you. Nice to see you. you. Steve Kroll, Managing Director at Monas Crespi Hart & Company, with the latest Titans Dinner. Nice, Bill Cats. All right, well, it's time now for Business Week Politics. A great story on the Bloomberg today, trending high on the terminal's most read function. It's by Eric Larson, and he is a U.S. legal reporter here in New York. He's with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. Also joining us, Jillian Goodman. She is politics editor for Bloomberg Business Week. This story appears in the upcoming issue. She joins us from our 99.1 studio in D.C. Jillian, I want to start with you. Set the table for us from a political perspective and and why this story was interesting for Business Week. Yeah, well, I mean, first, great intro music choice. I really appreciate it. <laughs> Paul, Paul um, Brennan. Yeah. But um, yeah, so this is interesting because, I mean, you have on the one hand Nashville, which has uh, attracted a number of large businesses lately. And on the other hand, the state of Tennessee with a new, more conservative legislature that's tra- been trying to enact um, LGBT unfriendly legislation. And now we saw in North Carolina a few years ago when that state enacted legislation right. that was seen to be anti-trans. Uh, businesses sort of deserted the state. And uh, so the city of Nashville is now afraid that that's going to happen if Tennessee gets its way. And Eric, come on in on this, because I think what's interesting is you tie it all together, right? You've got cities who want to bring in big business, right? Big business is getting, I feel like, more powerful in pushing things to be more equal, more fair, those ESG impactful aspects of running a business, right? And so they're having more sway with politics and politicians. Yeah, and I think a lot of that was going on behind the scenes here with with these bills that were proposed in February, uh, less than a year uh, after uh, Alliance Bernstein announced it was moving its corporate headquarters from Manhattan to Nashville. And then just in November, Amazon announced a big expansion there with an operations center 
Um, both of them are building uh, towers down t- in downtown Nashville, and then they get hit with this, I guess you could call it maybe a cultural bait-and-switch. They're like, oh, we, our diversity and inclusion programs uh, aren't going to look so great uh, if these laws are enacted. And a lot of companies banded together and signed an open letter, including those two companies. And for now, the worst of the legislation has been pushed off until voting on next year by the state Senate. So you went there. How worried are business leaders that this is just a delay and not really fully stymied? Well, yeah, they, I think they would have been happy to see them pulled all together, yeah. but it's a two-year legislative session, so they'll be uh, the, the state Senate will consider them uh, starting in January. They already passed the House. The governor said he's, he'd sign them. So there clearly was a lot of pressure behind the scenes. Uh, one of the bills uh, would make it uh, legal for religious adoption agencies to discriminate against uh, same-sex couples. Right. Um, another has to do with restricting transgender students' bathroom use at schools. Um, so uh, these are going to be live issues again next year, and the companies are going to have to deal with them again. Um, and who, kno- who knows if they'll give in that second time around. Jillian, I do wonder how live these issues will be come the 2020 elections, because I love Eric's story, and Harry says lots of blue cities have flourished in deeply conservative states. But you do wonder about the momentum behind these blue cities and the political impact that that could have in the next few years. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. We're seeing, I mean, I think it's a big, uh, you know, tension in politics on both sides of the aisle, Republican and Democrat, how much to play into identity politics and how much the candidates uh, think that that will help them or hurt them. And so this is just one uh, facet of a much larger story around that. Well, and Eric, and you saw this being down there and Carol's point about your story is, is dead on. I grew up down south in Atlanta. You know, you think about what happened in this most recent gubernatorial election with Stacey Abrams, you know, coming so close, but largely based on, you know, a, 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 an urban population, Atlanta, right. <laughs> essentially, and then, you know, getting some disenfranchised voters uh, historically. But this is, as Jillian points out, this is a trend where you do have business right in the center trying to figure this out. We talked to the mayor of Charlotte not mm-hmm. too long ago right. who had to go through exactly this yep. same sort of drama given what happened with North Carolina. Yeah, it's definitely setting up a direct clash with these big companies. I, I think really exemplified by Alliance Bernstein and Amazon because that's all everyone's talking about yeah. in Nashville right now. And a clash with these, uh, especially freshman Republican lawmakers who were just Great elected point. in November. They're the ones who actually proposed most of these bills. They just took office and, you know, some of their critics um, on the Democratic side told me they think they, like you mentioned, are just playing politics. They want to sit, show their constituents, hey, look at how we're taking on Nashville, those liberals, uh, you know, right off the bat. And, uh, you know, one of, I saw one of the committee hearings uh, when it passed out of a Senate committee and uh, the sponsor of the adoption bill. After the hearing, a woman came up and was just thanking him and wanted to shake his hand, saying great job. So clearly there's some, a divide here. Well, and the quote you use in your story, I mean, is really startling right at the top you know i also encourage you this is a a, a representative who represents a suburban district northeast of memphis i encourage you to think about the consequences of voting against the bill as you face your god i mean that's yeah strong stuff powerful yeah the people in the in the room gasped and said wow the chairman pounded his gavel and threatened to have them removed for reacting to what the the guy had said uh but that's you know clearly that's how he felt so it's a reminder though that there is a strong divide people feel very strongly on both sides of the issue Eric Larson, great reporting. And as we said, this story trending high on the Bloomberg terminal today, among the most read stories. Eric Larson is U.S. legal reporter at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York City.
Brady, and our thanks to Jillian Goodman as well. She is politics editor at Bloomberg Businessweek, and she is joining us or was joining us from our 991 studio in Washington, D.C. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Bruce Biddles, excuse me, is back with us. Bruce Biddles, he's chief investment strategist at Baird on the phone from Sarasota, Florida. Hey, Bruce, good to have you here. Uh, Your note to kick off this trading week um, before the declines that we got on Monday and Tuesday, it noted that technical indicators supported the argument for a short-term pullback that that was not to be ruled out. So yesterday's selling, was that the kind of pullback you were talking about or maybe something more substantial? And so it's still to come. Well, we've been looking for a, a, a pullback of sorts. You know, the market's been up um, without a 3% pullback. As a matter of fact, um, this is the second longest uh, stretch without a 3% correction since the March 2009 low. So um, 3% corrections, 5% corrections, even one. 10% correction in any given year, it would be normal. So we had a big run-up in the S&P and the NASDAQ uh, and other indices in the first four months. So it was logical that at some point we'd have some sort of a pullback. And the reason why we were looking for it here was, well, this was before we learned about the increased trade tensions. The technicals were weakening. The breadth of the market was narrowing, and that typically signals that you're getting closer to some sort of short-term peak. And perhaps even more importantly, investor optimism was moving toward an extreme, becoming excessive. And that typically what happens also uh, when you're approaching some sort of a short-term peak in the market. So with that said, we felt that the market in the second quarter would suffer some sort of pullback correction, maybe even stretch into the third quarter a little bit. And But we felt that um, that would be the pause that refreshes, and we'd have a fourth quarter um, would probably or could be one of the best quarters in the market for the year. But we need to see more of a pullback, correct, from what we've gotten so far? I think you need to see a pullback with a lot of increased pessimism, at least short term. And I'd like to see the breadth of the market hold up during a pullback like that. So those are the two things we're looking for for this thing to settle down. Now, with that said, of course, we still have the elephant in the room, and that's the discussion on uh, trade talks that are going to be taking place on Friday right? and perhaps over the weekend. So we'll see how that plays out. And so how do you figure that in, Bruce? And before we get to that, I should uh, tip my cap to you for the pause that refreshes, uh, throwback to, you know, you call a guy in Sarasota, you expect him to make a little Coca-Cola reference. I like it. Um, so, so, Bruce, uh, you know, how do you read the, these trade negotiations and how do you factor that in to a short-term investment thesis? Well, it's pretty hard to factor it in because there's so many unknowns. You don't know what China's coming to the table with over this yeah. weekend, whether they're going to be hostile or they're going to be friendly. But I think, you know, it's to, it's to both parties' benefit to come to some sort of agreement here. And I think China has the weaker hand. Um, the Chinese economy is soft. 
it's been responding to stimulus, but as soon as the stimulus is taken away, all of a sudden the growth begins to deteriorate. And I think authorities in China are really concerned about the excessive debt, and that's why they're not, they don't keep the stimulus on. They have to take it off because they're worried about excessive debt. Now, um, also, I'd add that you know, China's exports are much, more, are much greater to the U.S. than we export, export to China. And China runs this big trade surplus, but if you look at the surplus, it's almost entirely due to the imbalance of trade with the U.S., so, uh, so I think you know the administration has the upper hand here. Whether that's going to play out to a successful deal or not, uh, very difficult to say. So, in the meantime, when you see a pullback, potentially like we got yesterday, or maybe waiting for something more substantial, will you be buying? And if so, what will you be buying? Yeah, we would look to be buyers. What we want to see here are two things. One, we'd like to see the excessive optimism really fade away and turn into some sort of short-term pessimism. That would indicate that we're probably close to some sort of short-term bottom. I'd also like to see the breadth of the market improve during this any decline that we get. The problem we had in the last month or so, the reason why the market was just grinding higher in um, late April and 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 early in May is because the breadth had deteriorated. So we'd like to see a broader participation on the upside the next go-around. So those are the two things we're looking for. Mm-hmm. In terms of the sectors, um, well, the ones that have been working this year, we expect will continue to work, and that would be uh, information technology. And those companies are less dependent on uh, strong growth in the economy to grow their bottom lines. And I would think with full employment, you'd look at the consumer sectors, both discretionary and staples. I mean, the consumer looks to be in pretty good shape. Um, and if you look at last month, actually, they have drew down some of their debt. So I think that's bullish going forward as well. And if we get an infrastructure deal or if we get any trade deal, I think you'd have to look at the industrials as well. And technology, uh, tell me a little bit more about that. What, why do you like it? You, you seem to be pretty committed to it. Well, I'm committed to it because we're firm believers in relative strength. And when we're looking at sectors in the market, and certainly that's where the strength has been. And typically strength begets strength. So I I look for that to continue. Certainly the software companies are probably where most of the action is and also in, in cloud technology. Hey, you've seen a bunch of market cycles. I don't know. How do you make sense of this one or, or how do you see it? Well, this cycle is totally different than cycles we've seen, say, 10, 20, 30 years ago, because the Federal Reserve Board and the central banks were not so much of a big player here. Um, if you look back at the U.S. and look at Europe, I mean, for the, since 2009, um, quantitative easing was supposed to be a temporary uh, fix, and now it's 10 years later, and we're still experiencing that. So from that perspective, it it's, is different. But um, the markets are basically the same in terms of investor psychology and certainly um, supply and demand. So we look at those two factors and trying to make an outlook for, you know, more than just a short term. We're more concerned about the long term potential for the markets. And you'd have to admit the U.S. economy has done pretty well here um, versus certainly versus the rest of the world. Mm. And I would see that. I think that's going to continue. Right. 
Bruce Biddles, uh, always good to catch up with you. Chief Investment Strategist for Baird on the phone with us from Sarasota, Florida. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.